You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, welcome back to another episode of The Worship Review, the podcast which, under normal circumstances, charitably and critically evaluates the songs that we sing in church. But today, we are having another interview. We've been doing these lately, We've gotten a lot out of them, and I hope the listeners have as well. Today, uh, we are interviewing Daniel J. Mount. Uh, and actually, Dan, Daniel, I'll let you say a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Sure. I've done a variety of interesting things through the years. Uh, like both of you, I was a worship leader. I was a worship leader from 2000 through 2008. Uh, since that time, I have done some worship leading, mostly on a pinch hit basis, when a primary worship leader might be feeling poorly or out of town. I've done some preaching since then, too. Uh, I've done a variety of interesting things in music. I ran a music website for a niche um, Christian music genre for a number of years, and I uh, worked for a Christian record company from 2010 through 2016. Uh, but uh, one of the, and i also done some Christian songwriting, uh, but one of the most uh, interesting things I think that I've done over the last 11 years is I've been working on a project called Expository Songs, which uh, the idea is to take songs where the main idea of a scripture passage is the main idea of a song, and then I also catalog briefer references too. Working on that for about 11 years, um, the currently live version of that has about 15,000 songs in it, but I'm in the middle of an update which uh, should have 27,000 plus entries. Wow. Um, and for listeners who are new to the podcast, I should also introduce myself and my co-host. My name is Colin. I'm a history professor at a university in the Midwest. Tyler, who are you? Who am I? <laughs> You're Jean Valjean. Okay. Easy. I like that introduction, actually. That seems fine. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, so, Daniel, you were just talking about an extemporaneous, extemp- exp- excuse me, expository song project. So, can you... Yes. What is an expository song? Yeah, so it's a song where the main idea of a scripture passage is the main idea of a song. Now, you tend to hear this term more when we're talking about sermons, going back as far as Chrysostom, who we call the father of expository preaching. Not that he was the first to do it, but he's the first whose sermons we still have surviving till this day, where instead of a topical sermon, uh, he takes a scripture passage and preaches through it. Uh, This is taking a comparable idea to songs. I, I first became interested in music when I heard a Michael Card recording in the late 90s. And I was fascinated with how he dove deeply into a passage of scripture. The song Jubilee, for instance, really caught my attention from Leviticus. I think it's 25 in the 20s. And since that time, through a variety of styles in Christian music, I figured out that the songs I like the most tend to be songs that engage deeply with the passage of scripture. There's a time and a place for topical songs. I never mean to say that you never do a topical song. Virtually every service should probably have some. But these songs have held a particular fascination for me. I was pretty interested when I was looking at your project's website uh, because in some ways it's doing the inverse of what we're trying to do on this show. So, for example, if I I look at a song like... um, this is literal, literal title from Isaac Watts. Um, the fall and recovery of man, semicolon, or comma, Christ and Satan at enmity. And then I, I read the lyrics. I might say, oh, this kind of reminds me of Genesis 3.15, but th- or Genesis 3 generally. But what I like about the Expository Songs Project is I, can, I go in and I go to Genesis 3, and the songs are listed there that correspond to that passage in text. So it's it's kind of the inverse of what we're doing, and I think it, it subverts thereby yes. a lot of the bickering about music where someone brings a song that they like, yeah. and they say, well, you know, this is a great song, and then you kind of uh, negotiate that. Whereas this begins with scripture, and then finds songs to layer on top of that. Yes, and, and I will say to that, 
my brain is probably just wired differently than the average person, but I figured out along the way of working on this project that I didn't much care what musical style a song had. I always appreciate if it's done professionally and done with quality, but whether it's old hymns, pipe organ, CCM, Jesus music, Christian rock, Southern gospel, bluegrass, Christian country, um, traditional gospel, contemporary gospel. If a song is deeply engaging with a passage of scripture, I tend to like it. I, I have so many questions about this website because it is such an impressive... I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, Daniel, did you just... How did you do this, I guess, is my question. Like, this is... <laughs> okay. These are thousands well, of songs that you've... You basically, I mean, and for for listeners, I mean, so when I first learned about your your stuff, Daniel, I was like, okay, this must be a thing which is just gathered. I don't know, maybe it's like a forum where people are submitting their songs. But you've got, you, you know, I mean, no, there's like super popular songs here. There, there's just, it's just all, it's organized in a certain way. I mean, how how did you do that? How did you organize all of these songs? I should probably tell the origin story a little. So uh, from 2006 through 2014, I ran a, a website called Southern Gospel Blog, then Southern Gospel Journal. It was mostly focused on the Southern Gospel wing of Christian music. And uh, about halfway through 2010, 2011, somewhere in there, I heard a message by Paul Washer, I believe it was, where he said that Southern Gospel songs were only about the, the, the cross and streets of gold. And I was like, nah, I've heard a lot more engagement with Scripture in Southern Gospel than that, engagement with more Scriptures in Southern Gospel than with Passion Week and Revelation. Although many of them do, make no mistake, but I've, I've heard a lot more. So I started it, the first iteration that came out in 2011 was a Southern Gospel-focused project. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that... It wasn't for me about Southern Gospel so much because my initial entry into interest in music was Michael Card. Uh, but that whether it be Michael Card, Southern Gospel, John Newton, Isaac Watts, or people from any other era, the songs that really engaged thoughtfully with the scripture passage were the ones that were inter of interest to me. So that first round, uh, the Southern Gospel round, I had comments. I had some people submit ideas there of songs they thought of. Other than that, it's pretty much just been wow. my research. Uh, I went through hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of songs on Hymnary. I've listened to well into the six figures, I think, over the last decade of uh, recordings of Christian music. Uh, maybe I'm a little OCD, I don't know, but uh, I, I like doing research like this. Yeah, this is, it's like, a, I mean, this, if you created a project like this and then wrote a book about it you would get awarded a dissertation i think <laughs> if you if you, i'm serious mm -hmm. uh this yep. is a lot of work and really valuable and um i think it's going to be really useful for people who are who are leading worship or who are even just choosing songs can i ask you a question about your your process um sure there are a lot of songs that may reference a passage of scripture um but may not reference it in uh, a proper way or, or uh, may not reference it in biblical way. How do you decide which songs make the cut? Sure. That's more an art than a science, to be honest. Uh, but there are, I have a few clear boundaries for the project. If an artist falls outside of historic Christianity uh, in such a way that they would not affirm the ecumenical creeds of the church, uh, the Nicene Creed, um, the Chal Chalcedonian Creed, etc. I will not include their music. So there are uh, songs that engage scripture from Mormons, from Oneness Pentecostals, just to name two examples that actually have a fair amount of music out there. And I don't include those because uh, the doctrines of the LDS uh, and the doctrines of Oneness Pentecostalism fall outside of historic Christianity. Uh, from the three major branches of historic Christianity, obviously I draw primarily from uh, Protestant work, but 
I certainly have uh, included some songs from Catholics in the past. John Michael Talbot has some song settings I've included, for instance. And uh, there is a band in the late 90s, a CCM band, whose name is slipping my mind at the moment, who's Greek Orthodox. And I have a few songs in there from them. It's a fairly popular band. Uh, so I, as far as at the artist level, I try to only include songs by artists who would affirm... Uh, Orthodox Christianity, and I will say there have been a few artists in recent years who have announced they're deconstructing their faith, have left historic Christianity, and I tend to pull their songs out of the index at such a time. Even if they affirm Christianity at that point, it's just a matter of ongoing promotion of their music. As far as the song itself, I thought you'll you'll see in the in the in the thing I, I flag some songs as expository, and those songs are songs that I would tend to think, by and large, engage with the passage of scripture in at least a thoughtful way, whether or not I agree with every point. there It's at least a thoughtful engagement. References is a little more hit and miss. If it's just a passing illusion, if somebody just gives a shout out to Jesus walking on the water, there's a thousand songs that do that. Um, but if, if there's uh, Jesus speaking to the water and saying, peace be still, I'm probably going to throw that in as a reference. So it's kind of a judgment call when you get to, do I even include this reference? And I would say that more than anything else, my dividing line tends to be, does this engage with a passage and perhaps it's parallel passages in the gospels where there's a lot of parallels, but does this engage with the wording of a passage in such a way that it's recognizably distinctively connected to this passage rather than an allusion to a general theme. If it's an allusion to a general theme, I tend to not include those. I wonder, do you, um, when you say that the, they must be able to affirm ecumenical creeds of the church, uh, do you assume innocence on that front and then wait to be proved wrong, or is it the other way around? You wait yes. to find out that they affirm yeah. a creed and then include it? Yes, I, I tend to assume innocence. Um, with as broad and as I pull, there's so many writers who have long since passed away who I couldn't very well go and interview for every point of agree agreement with the Castledonian Creed. Fair enough. And when you mentioned pulling their their music if they if they uh, apostatize or uh, mm -hmm. deconstruct, can you explain? There, there usually isn't that much to pull in the first place. Fair enough. That makes sense. There might be there might be some illusions. I don't know if I've ever had to pull an actual expository song from an artist who's deconstructed. Well, then maybe the question is moot. But I I guess that just is a more theoretical question, right? Does yes. their work uh, have a a lifespan outside of their own? It does, but um, there is this component of I would anticipate that a large there's a percentage of the audience of this who might just be interested in it for devotional reasons, but I'm anticipating uh, that a large portion of the prospective audience for this project is of people involved in music at their church, whether they be a worship leader or somebody who sings a solo or plays a solo or a pastor looking for a song to go with a passage. And they'll, they will presumably have done even less research on the artists than I have. And I'm not recommending every song here for use in a church by any means, but if I know that I would not use it in my church, I'm a little hesitant to point other churches toward it. Uh, and by that same token, uh, while I say I will um, include songs from Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, I will do that so long as they don't, within the song, affirm a doctrine I'd have an issue with. Um, a song that's clearly teaching a distinctively catholic transubstantiation view of uh, communion or of the eucharist i probably wouldn't include that in the project even if they're referencing the words of the last supper um so i i use uh, and, and by that same token i am not um i am not prosperity gospel word of faith and while there's a chance i might include a song from somebody who might hold to some of those doctrines if the song is teaching a doctrine within the song that i don't uh, hold to i wouldn't include that probably either i try to keep the the project fairly ecumenical but to the exclusion of doctrines that would fall pretty far afield from what a conservative protestant would believe i was just going to say sometimes that can be very difficult though yes. too I, I know that there's a song that's very popular around christmas time in some more conservative Protestant churches called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, 
which as an Advent song, as a Christmas song, um, would not be offensive necessarily. But when you look into the history of the song and you realize it's actually referring to the Eastern Orthodox Eucharist, that uh, Christ our God to earth descendeth, you, you may wonder, is this something, like that it comes out of that tradition and is sung at that point in their service, is this something that we want to sing? And I think these these things get really, as you mentioned, it's an art and not a science, and it gets really artsy really quickly because uh, as we've tried to talk about our rating schema on the show, you know, in a few episodes in the past, it's it's hard to it's hard to put these kind of things in a nice bins, but I think the way you've organized the expository songs project along the scriptural lines is very helpful. I was just going to say, say organized along scriptural lines, if you will, some of the initial impetus, there's a scripture index in a lot of hymnals. I'm, what I'm trying to do is the hymnal scripture index to all of Christian music uh, within certain boundaries, which is an impossibly ambitious project. One person could never pull off, but having fun getting as close as I can, I suppose. Well, but also, I mean, at some point, somebody could take this, especially if you can, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is easy to export. Maybe someone could kind of scrape this and you could, I mean, it may spawn, this is the sort of thing where if a few people got word of it and started using it, you would end up, there would, you would find another Daniel J. Mount somewhere out there. And then that Daniel J. Mount would be like, okay, I can do this chunk of it, right? And it becomes... Yes greater project with some publicity it could grow further and to a point uh, tyler was saying there would be room in a project like this if it were to gain more traction and more recognition to have a theological review board that carefully considered such questions i'd be open to that if there was enough interest it's just a one-person project by and large i've actually have had a few other people send ideas in here and there too but being largely a one-person project just to make the best judgment call I can, but it definitely is the kind of thing that could have a formalized process with, like in a Bible translation, somebody's assigned a book of the Bible, you could assign somebody to a book of the Bible here, go more deeply than one person could. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but even just, okay, so it's just a one person project, but in terms of what's available, I would say this has surpassed the like critical mass necessary to be a useful resource. Like, Like at this point, especially like there are bands for example, and there's, I would hope that there would be even more of them. But like Tyler and I know an artist or two. We 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 interviewed one of these folks uh, a while back on the podcast. A, a person who uh, we know a person who uh, takes older hymns and kind of g- gives them new life. And he, he's a worship leader, and he also has recorded some songs. The, a, a website like yours, the Expository Song Project, is like you know dangling fruit. For those sorts of projects, like if there are any musicians yes. out there that want to find old hymns, old lyrics based on scripture, this this project is where you need to go. And I would add in, I would love to see musicians who do that kind of thing, like uh, Bruce Benedict and the Cardiphonia Project do. I'd love to see musicians who do that sort of thing take a book of the Bible and find public domain hymn texts. Um, they can use the hymn research too, but hymn research has a lot more false positives because it's not moderated by a human. Um, so I, I think I, I've filtered out a lot of the false positives as well as found many hymn references that aren't, aren't in that index. And do a, a, a themed project of songs from a particular book of the Bible or that kind of thing would be very feasible and very helpful for the church. You're literally serving it up on a platter yes. to any musician. Like you, you've basically done all the non-music, non-fun work. Um, and it is fun. All a musician needs to do is just take what you got there and be like, okay, great. I'm going to do a uh, song project on Revelation chapter five. You know, and you and you, you've got a. I don't know if I don't. I'm saying that's a chapter where. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah, got it is. That's, you, uh, under Revelation chapter five. You've got a list of. I don't know how many songs are here, about 20 songs that have been done. Yeah, Uh, but and I say that I like to think it's reached a critical mass now, but I'm hoping toward the end of this year or early next year it'll reach another level of critical mass because I'm on pace to more than double it, uh, double what's live right now. In my private spreadsheet that isn't the the public published version, 
because it takes some conversion processes, takes a while to update. I'm at more than 27,000 entries versus 15,000 on the site now. Wow. So I think we, I mean, you've talked a little bit about how this might help musicians um, or might give musicians ideas for future projects. But I, I also see this as a very practical uh, resource for pastors where a pastor could say, well, I'm oh, preaching yeah. on this uh, exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. We go to the expository songs project and pull it up and they could even say to their musicians for Sunday, look, I'm doing um, this thing on John 3. I'd really like for you to do this song. You know, if you can, that would be great. Um, or even I've heard this, I've heard uh, pastors include references from older hymns in their sermons as well. And it seems like this could, if you wanted to do that, this would be a pretty useful uh, resource. Yes, and, and to a church that's considering something like that, you don't necessarily have to compose a new melody. Most of these lyrics will fall into common meter 8686, long meter 8888, or one of a half a dozen other fairly common meters. And there will be other melodies that your church is already singing, already knows, that you might be able to find one that fits. So you can more often than not take one of the public domain lyrics, hymn lyrics, and sing it to a tune your church already knows and use it immediately in the church with no learning curve if that's what fits your service you say okay my church knows the tune jerusalem so here's a song mm -hmm. that can fit that what has what have you noticed or learned from working on this project about uh, the music of the church it's interesting to watch the trend lines because over the course of all of english language hymnody because if you look at the earliest era of English language hymnody, you see Isaac Watts, for instance, out of exclusive psalmody because he came from an era when you only sing psalms in many Protestant churches. And he started to make the case within his family, within his church, that there's merit in singing messianic interpretations of the psalms, which, for instance, Joy to the World is, and singing songs based on other passages of Scripture. But in Watts's songwriting, almost everything he wrote was tied closely to a passage of scripture. And at some level, theologically, it's why some of the earlier generations of English language hymn writing have a higher view of God and better theology. In part, it's because the, perhaps there was better theology in the part of the writer. A higher percentage of them were pastors with formal theological training. Uh, but in part, it was because it was the custom and expectation in the earlier generations to have a higher percentage of songs deeply rooted in scripture rather than deeply rooted in uh, the emotions of the writer or some other source. And it's not a straight line, but there's been... A fairly steady decline in engagement with scripture since the earliest couple of generations. After Watts, uh, the, roughly a generation later, you have John Newton and the Wesley brothers, who will have some songs that are more emotional, more from a, a source of engaging with their emotions. Uh, William Cooper from that same era did a fair amount of that, uh, but have... Uh, songs with just phenomenal engagement with scripture and uh, this is part of why i think the era of newton and the wesley brothers has some of the highest percentage of hymns that we still sing and love as hymns that have good theology they're they're bringing in emotions a little more i'm not saying isaac watts was entirely out of balance or he was definitely not emotionless uh, but they're engaging with a broader spectrum of emotions while still engaging deeply with scripture and so that i kind of think is in a sense the high point of theological lyric writing in the english language there is somewhat of a pivot point i think in the era of the second great awakening um, Civil War vicinity and the songs of the later 1800s, the, the English language hymns of the later 1800s, especially in the United States, tend to be the ones that will have more of a passing allusion to scripture. Sometimes they are still phenomenal songs. Blessed Assurance is a phenomenal song, for instance, or many of Fanny Crosby's other hymns, but they tend to not be working point by point 
through a passage of scripture where a verse is unfolding, a verse of the song is unfolding an idea of a verse or a part of a verse, where, where, where the scripture is providing the structure for the song, it's more passing references. And as such, when you get to the lyric writing of the later 1800s in particular, there's a lot less that's directly expository, although there's still a few and still some fantastic references. And it's been comparable since then, where you'll have the occasional phenomenal writer, uh, writer who engages deeply with scripture on a consistent basis. Uh, but it's more the exception than the norm since roughly the American Civil War. I guess, could I ask a question? Sure. You know, so you've, you've obviously run into many, many, many worship songs at this point. And you talked a little bit about your general principles about excluding particular songs or maybe including particular songs. I wonder, can you think of an example, like a, a particular song, which was maybe on the borderline and why you either chose to let it in or why you decided, okay, in the end, this just doesn't quite make it like something that was a, a hard one. Like give us a sense of your thought process as you, you know, as an editor. Have to be honest. I don't have a specific song that comes to mind mm -hmm. where because it's usually not that hard of a decision okay when there is a song that is on the edge of having enough of a reference to a particular wording of a passage that i would include it as a reference versus considering it a loose allusion to a theme i tend to think it's no great loss to the project if that's not included uh, it, because it's not like there's a song that's expository and deeply engages with the passage. Do I include this or do I not? I would only not include that if there was a theological problem in the song itself or if the writer was outside of Nicene Christianity by and large. But so so you have these this group of expository songs, which are the songs that engage more deeply with the passage. And then you have this broader group of songs with more references that you still see the wording but it's not necessarily the main idea of the song and if a song's right on the edge of that because i think it's not that much of a loss if i don't have it i'm not too concerned about it really and you've made a reference to something about the expository songs project that we haven't mentioned before and that is you kind of have you have these two categories you have the expository song and then you have other references songs and so uh can you explain that distinction a little bit for example, for Leviticus 25, sure. Jubilee by Michael Card is an expository song, but Blow Ye the Trumpet Blow by Charles Wesley is an other references song. How did you sort these two into those categories? Blow Ye the Trumpet Blow makes reference to Jubilee. It might even be a full verse in some cases. It's usually not a full verse, but it's not the primary idea of the song generally. Of course, you go through enough thousands of songs, you'll find some mistakes. I'm sure I've mislabeled some of these. I should also add there is a third category that you don't see often, but I've been working on expanding greatly into the thousands of entries in the most recent update, and that's uh, quotes or scripture songs, songs where you're singing the wording of scripture because there's merit to churches in using those too. Um, there's a few of those you'll see for some books of the Bible, some chapters, you'll see expository reference quote, um, but that should expand greatly with the next update. Speaking of, I'm just curious, is this whole project one XML file on your computer or something? It's Google Sheet. Oh, okay. Even even easier. Great. Because I can run all kinds of crazy formulas. Yeah. Uh, like I put, for the most recent update I'm working on, I primarily focused on doing a more systematic review of recorded Christian music from all genres of artists that aren't the Dove and Grammy winners, but are still out there. So I, to start this project, I spent a couple months identifying artists, looking in various sources, lists of Christian artists, went through the old um, Mark Powell's Encyclopedia of Contemporary Christian Music, for instance. And I identified about 6,000 artists, taking me from about 600 to about 6,000. Uh, I put... 270,000 songs or so into YouTube playlists, exported the playlists to CSV, imported the CSV to Google Whoa. Sheets, and then I started running formulas to extract the title of the song and the channel, which is usually the artist's name, uh, to have more easy reference to work with the data. So that's just a peek into my process 
for some reason, I find working with data like this great fun and relaxing and enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. So as somebody who's worked in the Christian music industry for a Christian record label, um, why do you think it is that some people uh, work very hard and produce very scriptural, biblical music and do not see success, and then someone else sounds exactly like a pop star and sings one song that makes vague references to the Bible or to some tenet of the Christian faith? and explodes in popularity. I don't know that there's any one answer to this. Uh, there are so many talented Christian singers. A large part of success in the Christian music industry is being at the right place, right time, knowing the right people, and uh, having the right look, too. There aren't many slightly overweight 40-year-olds who are becoming CCM stars. It's a, it's a terrible shame. It's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but then there's also a component of industry expectations because there's a certain type of song that tends to succeed in CCM and CCM charts and other recorded Christian music. There there is this trend line though, artist after artist, it doesn't always hold true. But the artists that tend to be big break in, have some big hits in Christian music, sometimes even Christian worship. When they're 16 or 22, they tend to engage more with their emotions, and those tend to be the songs, and, and less of scripture, on the continuum or the spectrum, and those tend to be the songs that succeed in Christian radio. As these same artists age, if they continue recording music, almost invariably more than 80% of their time, their work at 40 engages the scripture more than their work at 20 did. Some will go farther than others, but it's almost invariably that they'll engage more, and it's almost invariably they'll see less radio and charting success at that point. It's funny, as I've, I've noticed this generally, this is a bit ethereal, but um, I've noticed this generally as I've gotten older, like, especially when I hit kind of my 30s or maybe even my my mid 30s which i guess was not that long ago i really really started appreciating quality over almost all other attributes of a thing and this in general this in just broad areas of my life like whether it comes to the food i eat or i don't know just just various my own time what's the that podcasts you make the podcast that's right the podcasts you <laughs> that's make that's right i don't know like i've just come as i've gotten older I just appreciate things that have more value. And one of the things that's changed in in my own walk of faith is also just music. Like I just the more I engage with scripture and music, the better I tend to think the music is. I just have less time and less tolerance for stuff, music uh, and, uh, and other aspects of what you might call Christian culture that do not engage in scripture because I've just come to see scripture as having the highest value the most meaning the most depth and i wonder if just other yeah i wonder if just yeah we're seeing songwriters do that too right so so as their christian faith matures and as they just get older in life they're just finding their way towards quality which is scripture and probably the younger audiences that tend to consume music i guess um maybe they're just not not there yet they're not ready for that so they don't the, the two markets don't line up, like the producer and the consumer doesn't line up, maybe? There is a component where teenagers find it really interesting to listen to other teenagers sing about how they're feeling. Yeah. Whether it be social media rejection, breakups, young love, that kind yeah. of thing. And this is not a trend that's just true in Christian music. No. <laughs> uh, but so teenagers tend to enjoy listening to other teenagers sing about how they're feeling. Teenagers and adults tend to not be as interested in hearing a forty-year-old sing about a midlife crisis. Yeah, I mean th that's not a that's not a trend that started you know twenty or thirty years ago, yeah. right? I mean th that's uh, that's something that's uh, probably uh, part of the human condition, as that kids are emotional. They're trying to figure out what their life is going to be and what they mean. Um, with respect to Christian music. I don't think it's even necessarily malicious or something if, if someone says, 
Okay, kid, you're 18 or 19. If you want to succeed in this Christian music industry, you want to be on the Dove Awards. You want to shake uh, Stephen Furtick's hand. Um, here's what you've got to do. You've got to uh, you've got to write a, a breakup song with your negative emotions, and uh, that will become a breakthrough hit. And uh, then make a song where you sound like Adele. That will become a breakthrough hit. And then you can start, you know, branching out as a musician. And and if you're 18 or 19, and there's, you know, I'm not not necessarily from a Christian perspective, but just from like a uh, someone who wants to make make a living doing music, they might say, okay, sure, I'll I'll sing about whatever you want me to sing about. Um, it's just a to me, it seems like a shame that we treat that as something that's inherently uh, Christian because that music is not necessarily inherently Christian. There, there is another component, though, which we're talking as though most artists write their own songs, which, of course, is yeah. partially true. But there is a Christian songwriting industry, which I got to watch some of how that worked through working at a record label. And, and it's interesting because it doesn't always work quite like people would think. There are definitely some singers who see success in charts, uh, various Christian music uh, genres. But the ones who live in Nashville and really make a living of it have to crank out high double digits, low triple digits of songs a year because not every song will get recorded to, to generate enough recordings to continue to pay their salaries so that they can continue, continue to write full-time it's fairly common in Christian music and in Nashville Christian music, various genres, for the professional songwriters to have a morning session and an afternoon session. And sometimes they'll finish with other co writers. And sometimes, often one who's lyrics focused, one who's music, fo a melody focused. And they will often finish a song in both sessions. Now, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes they'll stretch out a song over two or three sessions. But the songs tend to be completed fairly quickly and a lot of Christian music with some thought. The writers, writers, what they read, their influences, they put effort into making it as good as they can within the limited period of time they have to work with. And I don't mean to criticize that. They're doing as good as they can within the constraints of making a living doing it. Some, some as good as they can is better than others as good as they can, of course, from a theological perspective. It is unusual, and part of the reason modern hymns have the depth they do is that it's more common among writers on the Getty hymn writing team or Stuart Townend to take months or a year to finish a lyric, polish it, review it, send it to other people for feedback, where in both worship music and in CCM radio pop charts as well as Southern Gospel and some other connected genres. There isn't much of a peer review process, which is one of the things you were talking about when you first launched the podcast. Yeah. So intrigued me. Like, what if there was a peer review process for Christian music? The process tends to look more like, uh, does it? Does anything in the lyric raise red flags with either of the writers, or if there's three or four, any of the writers involved, does anything raise a red flag with them? They'll send it to their A&R person at the publishing company, and he or she, does it raise red flags with them? Often, none of these individuals are trained theologians, might not notice something that would be noticed here. And uh, then it'll get, a demo will be recorded, sent to an artist for consideration. The artist will pick the 10 songs they'd like the most head into the studio. And there isn't a peer review process before a song goes out, uh, which, as I've listened to your podcast through the years, I think I came on board late first season or early second season and went back and listened to the previous episodes something from having experienced and watched this process work. I'm not saying you overthink scriptural connections, like what might this line be referring to? But I do think that sometimes in the podcast, you've devoted more thought to how this song ties into scripture than the writers probably did. Yeah, sure. Because they have pressure to finish up that session, can they call the song done this time or have to schedule another half a day to book, finish it and go to the afternoon session to finish something else up? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying everything gets done. Like, there will be ideas germinating in their heads for longer, and what will often happen is an artist who co-writes their songs will come into a session with 
here's a hook I have, a, a potential title. Can we write a song around this? And then the professional writers will take that title, build a song around it in an afternoon or maybe two afternoons. But I think in this podcast, you're often engaging more thoughtfully with the lyrics than happened at any point prior to the song going out. And I don't mean to be hypercritical because these are people who have jobs to do, they're doing as well as they can under their constraints. But uh, that has been a thought I've had occur to me a number of times in different episodes. I'm like, you're probably thinking more about this than the writer ever did. <laughs> That's, my wife always tells me that. <laughs> We're overthinking things on this show. That's what uh, we do, right? It's well, but I think because there are probably I don't I don't know there are many of us, but maybe one in one hundred people in that in every church is going to be overthinking what you put in the church service, and 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 I don't think it is necessarily overthinking to be honest with you. It, it just seems to be thinking drawing things out to their logical conclusions i guess it's probably the level of engagement that we ought to have uh for for or at least at least not that every worship leader ought to have but those who would be gatekeepers ought to have this level of careful thought i think that's but right. it's often not happening before the song goes live which is why you will time and again have a lyric what on earth were they thinking <laughs> yeah right and uh we had mike tapper and mark jolicoeur on the show a few episodes ago and they mentioned their recent study which found that the um the the period of christian music is shortening so they're yes. coming out quicker and they're falling quicker and if you are one of these um if you're a songwriter in nashville that's good for your business because you don't want to bank on one of your songs becoming a super hit if you want the songs that are out now to be irrelevant in six months if you can so that your new song that you're writing now can get it. Am, do I have that right, Daniel? Yes and no. I mean, there there is... When a song hits big, you get less from it, is the counterpoint to that. Uh, and just to shed some context for readers who might not understand this, the Christian music industry has changed an awful lot since the 90s, when it was more or less making money hand over fist with some of their best artists. But that was an era when you'd go to the Christian bookstore and buy a CD for as much as $18, maybe 15 or 12 if it yep. was on sale. And so you're going from $12 to acquire a song to the transition to iTunes, where you're paying $0.99 cents to just buy the one good song off the CD, perhaps. So now you have one fifteenth of the revenue. Uh, but then you've made the transition where few songs are purchased anymore, and you're talking hundreds or thousands of a penny per stream on Spotify, YouTube, uh, and, and other uh, Apple Music and other streaming platforms. So the aspect of it that those who are trying to do this and pay the bills doing it are looking at is if you're getting hundredths of a penny or thousandths of a penny per stream of a song, and a decent song gets 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 streams on, say, YouTube and comparable on other platforms, you have to write a lot of songs to pay the bills. Which is why in modern hymns, if you look at the five or so biggest names in modern hymns, almost all of them have jobs somewhere else so that they can only put out five songs a year and work on those songs for longer and make them as good as they can. Mm. Um, Jordan Coughlin, who wrote All I Have is Christ, yeah. is a minister of music in um, Atlanta, Georgia. I, I know him. I've actually I've, I've, uh, I've, I've been with him. on. I've, I've played music Great. with him. Yeah. Great. Um, Bob Coughlin is a minister of music in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Matt Boswell is was a minister of music, but is now a lead preaching pastor at a church in Texas. Uh, Stuart Talented has been a, a minister of music at a church in uh, UK. I forget. I forget the name of the town. Uh, Keith and Kristen Getty are kind of the semi the one exception, but they don't get revenue only from songwriting. They're also touring artists and put on a massive conference each year that if you have 10,000 people in an arena and they're each paying 30 or $50 tickets, they have other revenue streams besides just songwriting. So the sort of people who want to take time to really write thoughtfully usually aren't able they're making a sacrifice in a sense to do that they're mm -hmm. usually not able to pay the bills because they're taking too much time per song to make that song good and sacrificing having enough output to have a real chance of paying the bills doing it 
this meditating on this just has me thinking that that which succeeds in Christian radio uh, I can't even formulate it in an axiom. By the just, way, this is a microcosm just, of what you're talking about, right? Tyler could probably just spit the words out, but he wants to spit the words out <laughs> exactly right. Oh, man. So he's willing to take a minute to get together the exact way that this <laughs> this is seven-second sentence should be said. Oh, yeah. The top 40 <laughs> shouldn't drive the worship of the church. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate your... Um, your measured approach to that where you're not condemning it you're just saying look this is a business these people have to pay the bills they have to get out you know i have friends seven like, dozen songs yeah. in a year when i uh, ran the music website i have friends who did that for southern gospel and had some ccm crossover for some of their songs so I i'm able to say that as somebody who still has friends for whom that is their eight to five and there's some great people who do it who are doing the best they can. And so I can come at it from the perspective. Now, I, I worked in, in North Carolina for a record label in North Carolina, so I wasn't fully in the Nashville scene, but we were constantly engaging with that because our artists, two-thirds of the songs they recorded were written in Nashville probably. Um, but because I have friends who do this, it, it helps to not be a bomb thrower. There's some really great people who are doing the best they can under those constraints. I, I really and appreciate the, that. there are some people who... I kind of feel like maybe ought to take some time off and ought to do it part-time and put more thought into what they, you know, th there is, but there are some great people who are doing what they can there. Well, let's see. Any last questions, Tyler? I do want to mention one thing if I could. Yeah. Uh, which is, we've been talking about the project and it's freely available. Don't charge anything for it, but we haven't said where to go to get it. Uh, go to oh, my yeah. website, danielmount.com, daniel, M-O-U-N-T.com. And uh, Expository Songs is one of the options in the menu there. Uh, that's where you go to access it. We'll put that link in the podcast episode for listeners in the description. I don't think we have anything else, Colin. No. So. Daniel, do you have any questions for us at all? Yes. Have you thought about what it would look like to expand the, a peer review process for Christian music beyond the podcast? Because I think it's helpful to have the podcast but it probably would be helpful to engage more people in that conversation. I haven't figured out how it should work or what it should look like, but I am curious because you've talked about the peer review process from the start. What if that expanded? What might it look like? I have a thought, but Tyler, do you have anything that I was actually thinking about this earlier when you mentioned, um, you said you would consider having a panel for the expository songs yes. project. And I thought, imagine handing a panel of f three to five people, 27,000 songs and saying you need to give a score to each of these songs or you need to give a rating I mean that is a lot of work and I think you would need some institutional backing and money to make yeah. that uh, Agreed. work out and it seems like that's only something that can either A, be kind of crowd sourced but then the quality would possibly suffer because you would just be getting like a bunch of you know random different people's opinions um or backed by an institution, but then you might wonder, is the institution going to bias how it reviews things? So, I don't know. It seems, it seems messy. I think this podcast and the Expository Songs Project are the only two ways that it can be done. <laughs> what do you think, Colin? <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I think... Speaking of what just a random, what bunch of random guys think, uh, Colin... Well. I mean, I, I do think because there isn't a, I mean, I don't know, think about how the universities came to be, right? This was not a, uh, suddenly everybody was like, let's all have universities and it just kind of poof, right? These are things that rose up in a kind of uh, market-ish based way. So there's, you know, stuff that, stuff like the expository song project, stuff like scholars at seminaries are doing some of this work. We are... Um, Vince at the Brian test. I mean, there, yes. th now there will be, um, there will be better and lower, or there will be kind of a more thoughtful and less thoughtful ways of doing peer review, I guess, to, to shorthand it, there will be better and worse ways of doing that. And so presumably even those people who would appoint themselves at this point as kind of critics or, providing peer review, I mean, there would even be some competition among those. Now, again, not rivalrous competition, but just sort of, um, you know, there, there, there's a, be a process of kind of figuring out which of those are 
providing a more useful or less useful service. But you could do this a lot of different ways. I really like the way City Light does things. I mean, City Light I've heard has pastors that check out their music and that kind of review it and you know take some thought. But but when it comes down to it, the market has to demand it too. You know, it's kind of so. What I hope a podcast like ours does, and and some of these other resources that are available to a wider audience. My hope is that what that stimulates in the audience is a little bit more of a demand for thoughtful, critical music and maybe some kind of standardization. Like maybe maybe there will be a day when there are some stamps of approval that could be put onto worship songs that the audience will say, hey, look, you know, that that worship song has been recommended by thus and such or has, you know, had this, again, not necessarily a formal certification, but there would be a, a a way in which it could be could be known a shorthand way which of course is at the denominational level exactly what used to happen through this old piece of technology called a hymnal which actually had Correct. a hymnal review board more often than not Correct. and came with the theological stamp of that denomination when the southern baptists are putting something in the uh, old broadman hymnal or uh, more recent iterations of that was originally Broadman or when the OPC is putting a song in the Trinity uh, Trinity or other denominations, that is a theological stamp of approval that the song has gone through a vetting process and is something yep. we're comfortable singing in this denomination. What we don't have is, so we have that in a sense for the songs of, of history, yeah. which might be the songs of three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago history. What we don't have is that kind of process happening in real time yeah. for churches that might sing a Hillsong or a Bethel song right off the charts yeah, or might have a number of people in the congregation who consistently listen to, say, Keith and Kristen Getty's Facebook page or YouTube channel and are like, this is a song they just put out. Let's sing it. Which it's it's probably going to be a pretty good song if they put it out because they do have some level of internal review yeah. with a number of good songwriters looking it over and that helps some. So there is some level of standard of quality that people in our sorts of circles would say it's probably not going to be outright heretical, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the level of quality of one of their greatest songs either. Well, with that, we'll finish up the interview. Thank you so much, listeners, for uh, listening to this week's episode of The Worship Review. Daniel, thank you so much for showing up as well. Glad to be here. All right. And uh, for my co-host, Tyler, I bid you all adieu. Send us your Bitcoin. Tell your friends. Uh, and yeah, continue to enjoy the podcast. Send us feedback at feedback at The Worship Review. And we'll see you next time. Take care. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.